Before we get into the Star Trek Discovery season finale recap with Mike and Jessica here on Post Show Recaps, I want to take a moment and thank our sponsor for this episode of the podcast. Those are our friends over at Care Of. Care Of is a subscription service which makes it easy to get vitamins, protein powders, and more personalized just for you and delivered straight for your door. The great thing about Care Of is that they have an online quiz which lets you know exactly what vitamins or supplements you might need. Care Of's fun online online quiz is going to ask you about your diet, your health goals, your lifestyle choices. It takes only five minutes to find out your personally, scientifically backed recommendations for vitamins, protein powders, and more. I just took the quiz. I went through it. It was 52 questions for me asking me about all sorts of uh, different things that are uh, the things that I'm looking for, things that I'm experiencing in my health. And then I got some personalized recommendation for some vitamins that Care Of thinks that I should go after. They've got a promo code as well to get 50% off your first care of order. Go to takecareof.com and enter the promo code RECAPS50. It's not easy to know what vitamins or supplements you should be taking, but Care Of makes it easy to find out what you specifically need to be your healthiest. Care Of now offers protein powders available in individual packets for on-the-go and tubs all personalized to your fitness goals and dietary preferences. Care Of makes sure you're getting the vitamins and protein from the best sources backed by honest guidance and transparency. So head on over to Take Care Of and take the five-minute quiz to see what supplements and vitamins you might be interested in. And then for 50% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter the promo code RECAPS50. That's 50% off your first care of order at takecareof.com with promo code RECAPS50. Star Trek Discovery Season 2 is over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps, and parting from this program will be such sweet sorrow, but I think we are here to give it a proper send-off through the wormhole. My name is Jessica Lees, and with me, of course, is my number one, Mr. Mike Bloom. And I finally have a name, Jess. It's Una. I think that's a nickname. Oh, no. There's been so much debate amongst Trekkers this week about, like, is it Una? Is it Nuna? You know, this has been years upon years ever since Majel Barrett made her appearance here. So I guess now she has a nickname, but that is just an inch closer to finally finding out. It's like finding out uh, Mr. Big's name in Sex and the City. We're inching ever closer to that outcome, even though there's a chance we might not be seeing the Enterprise anytime soon. Yeah, unless we get that reboot, um, the series I think we all really want after coming out of this episode, I think we all are agreed we want the Pike and Spock on the Enterprise series, and that might be the only way we get to find out number one's name, but I did fact check this, and canonically, she does not have a name. Roddenberry (laughs) never gave her a name, and Una is like Uno because she's number one. But just, I don't know, maybe they couldn't uh, plagiarize the card game Uno, so they had to go with something just slightly different. I mean, on the order that Enterprise spinoff, and I will commonly be referring back to the interview I was able to do with Alex Kurtzman, the showrunner who now has be sued sharing co-showrunner titles with Michelle Paradise for season three. He said that, quote, the fans please have been heard. 
So I don't know what that means, but I would not exactly rule out. Just like Spock told Michael Burnham that what she saw last episode was one of possible futures. I think we could see a possible future that does include some sort of Pike-helmed Enterprise spinoff. Oh, I can only hope because it's really, I think, the such sweet sorrow alluded to in part two of this week's episode is really about Anson Mount because how can we lose him? He was he was basically ran away with this entire season. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think just from a writing perspective, from a characterization perspective, I think he was also like an interesting dose of what the crew and the characters needed. I think he even explained that in the very first episode of the season when he says, I'm not Lorca. I think we've been so used to the gritty, dark, depressing nature of season one of Discovery that I think he was a great microcosm of what season two of Discovery would bring, which was, you know, some still heavy elements to it, but not nearly as much as, you know, the war-addled mirror universe Lorca. He was fun. He had values. He had charisma out the wazoo. I mean, I definitely want to talk at the end, Jess, about what we thought the pluses and minuses of season two of Star Trek Discovery were, but Huge plus column for me was Anson Mount's performance and what they were able to do with the Pike character because of that. Oh, definitely. That would be my number one best thing about the season. <laughs> Your Una? My Una, if you will. Um, and maybe my least favorite part is how underused Rebecca Romaine was because <laughs> it was like, why is she even here if we're not setting it up to reboot a series? I did enjoy the one nod to her not having a name when they show everybody <laughs> being debriefed and she says her name is number one. It was sort of like, my name is Lieutenant Commander Arium. Yeah. Well, it's like, I would feel, because I feel like maybe in, in this universe, she does have a name and we just don't know it. And if that's the case, she's uh, pulling, you know, she's defying rank pretty well by just talking directly to her Starfleet interrogator. Like, this is my nickname and this is how I'll be referred to only even for this formal interrogation as to the disappearance of an entire ship. Yeah. Um, what if she ever got promoted? What if they tried to give her her own captaincy? I wonder if she'd have to, like, count backwards. Would she be number zero? I think and if she, she's an ad, if she's an admiral, does that make her number negative one? Oh man! And like every every consecutive admiralty star, she just keeps going more and more into the negative. Yeah, both from a uh, from a number perspective and a personality perspective. Maybe that makes her more hardened, like the late Cat Cornwell. Oh, I think we got it. We got to start there because that you know I figured we were probably going to lose some people, but. Cornwell, okay, I guess. Yeah, I totally agree. Cornwell has never really, I don't know. I really have no opinions on her. I think uh, Jane Brooke does a good job with her. I think the character was more of a representation of something than a character, if we're being completely honest, especially in the first season. She really was representing those Starfleet higher-ups. And she did have some interesting moments. You know, she did sleep with Lorca, where she found his sexy knife pillow, uh, and she she also got kidnapped by the Klingons, where her and Laurel sort of busted out together a bit. So she had some interesting stuff to do in season one. Season two, she really didn't have much to do. Maybe it's because there wasn't a war going on. Maybe she was put on timeout because, you know, she did try to blow up Kronos in the season one finale. But outside of going there and being like, hey, Pike, uh, yeah, there's some stuff going on. I totally agree with you. And then her sacrificial moment here 
not much to write home about with Cornwell, unfortunately. So of all the characters we had to lose, I suppose this makes sense, I guess, if we're thinning out this voluminous herd of characters at this point. Yeah, and we are, I guess, in a certain sense, we are losing a lot of characters for season three because we have made this separation between the Enterprise people and the Discovery people, and the Discovery people can't go back again. So in that sense, we did sort of lose them as well, and it, it is, we can mourn them almost the same way and be sadder about that, I think, than we are about an actual character death. Yeah, I mean, I still think because this show loves some Ash Tyler, I would not be surprised if we do habitual flashes to the present timeline and see see what Ash is up to, especially because we can certainly talk about the Giorgio smoking gun of it all, that if in order for a Section 31 spinoff to happen, she or some form of her has to make her way back to the present timeline, one would assume. But yeah, I would imagine, at least from what Kurtzman was telling me, the vast majority of the focus is going to be on this crew in the future, which I guess now makes more sense in terms of why everyone and their mothers agreed to stay aboard Discovery to fly into the wormhole. I thought it was just that crew that Tilly showed to Michael after her big impassioned speech. But no, there are people in the med bay. There are people running around all over the place. It seems like basically all the Discovery crew was willing to just sort of stitch on the red badge of courage and go into that wormhole. Well, yeah, it was like they, they sort of said, well, I can't get away from my post right now for you guys to go make your big stand. So why don't you just, when you go up and everybody stands there and says that they're coming along too, why don't you just make sure that like, oh yeah, yeah, my buddy, my buddy Steve back there in engineering, he's in too, but he was too busy to come here and tell you in person. Yeah, exactly. Like everyone sort of uh, rode in. They like signed a card and gave it to Michael Burnham saying, yeah, we voice our consent. We're in for doing this, too. But it makes me excited because I will say again, I'm not to uh, put the cart before the horse or I don't know, the tow cart before the spaceship when it comes to our pluses and minuses of the season. But I will say a problem that Discovery, I think, still has in its first two seasons is that in terms of characterization and ensemble building, it is biting off a bit more than it can chew, considering we still have four tertiary bridge crew members that we know a little to nothing about. And my hope, and Alex Kurtzman confirmed as much to me, is that hopefully this is going to be a sort of bottle season, in a manner of speaking, where they'll be able to go to a bunch of places, but I think they're going to focus more on that core group that we're going to see shuttling around this galaxy, you know, in, in such a disparate year from what we've seen before. And that gives me hope that we'll get less rushing in story for Arium only to kill her off so we can kind of marginally care about it and more let's build in random tidbits about these other characters so that now we have a fully fleshed out bridge crew that we all care about in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. And I feel like putting them in the future really allows the title of the show to come back into play because I think for a while there, Discovery was really only discovering how much retconning you have to do to shoehorn this advanced technology and this group of supposedly pivotal people that we never talk about again into this world that already exists. And now... I would say we could have probably done it more elegantly, but we've decided, okay, 
none of this is going to matter to that universe anymore. Let's go forward and explore a new universe. And I think ultimately that may be better for the show. I think it's extremely better for the show. I am in love with this decision because I think Star Trek Discovery for the past two seasons has been in its best when it's doing something new. The Kelpians is a great sign of that. All the stuff with Saru is so interesting because it's so new, yet it still lives in that Star Trek world of filtering the problems of today through the technology and the effects of tomorrow. And whenever it's sort of gone back, with Pike being the exception, when it's sort of gone back to the well of, oh, here are these characters you know and love in this timeline you know and love, that's when it leans a bit too much and therefore sacrifices a bit of originality and individualism. And in putting itself so far into the future, it has promptly cut those ties with the timeline, and it's it's set itself on it out on its own journey. When I, when I talk to Kurtzman about this, he says, "We love playing within canon. It's a delight and a privilege. It's fun to explore nooks and crannies of the universe that people haven't fully explored yet." I'm, you know, that's sort of the attitude that you felt in the first two seasons. That being said, we felt strongly that we wanted to give ourselves an entirely new energy for season three with a whole new set of problems. We're farther than any Trek show has ever gone. And he also talks about how he had firsthand experience working on the J.J. Abrams films where he says the problem of doing a reboot in a timeline that, you know, is that, okay, you know, we know how Kirk is going to die later on. We know how Spock is going to die later on. So we can't really present stakes because everyone knows what's going to happen. So that's how they set apart the whole Kelvin timeline of it all. And I think they ran into a similar problem here, and I think they realized it. So they said, all right, we introduced you to some characters that you know and love, maybe to bring in some of those diehard Trekkers who were out on the first season. Now we feel confident in what we're doing. Let's, to quaintly put it, go where no man has gone before and put ourselves in a time frame that both the audience and the characters have never experienced before, so we're all on the same ship together. Yeah, and it can truly be the future in this, like, future of the future. And I think that will be very interesting to see how they play with that in particular. Mm. The one thing I worry about is when you have a single crew getting cut off from the rest of everything else, does that begin to be a little too much like Star Trek Voyager? Mm, yeah, I was thinking a bit of Voyager-esque in terms of now you think about how long are they going to spend in the 32nd century, you know, and is that a bit about like, we need to get back home? Is it starting to become the quantum leap, even though Scott Bakula was in a another Star Trek series? Uh, I, I think that, you know, there there is a there's a chance that it could happen. But honestly, even if it's just one season and then they find their way back. I would still be fine with it because I think we just need a breath, especially considering how canonically heavy this second season was in having the Enterprise and having Pike and having Spock come and play such a large role in everything. I really just want an opportunity for them to explore their own space, explore their own characters, especially. So we'll see how long they're in there. I would not be mad if they were exploring the 32nd century, especially if they you know, I know that they had said that at that point, at least the point that Gabrielle Burnham jumped to, that's when everything was in shambles. I'm assuming they're now in a different timeline where control was neutralized and therefore there is still sentient life in the galaxy. So maybe they'll take a pose there. 
I wouldn't be mad at it. I think that people were hoping when Star Trek Discovery came out that it was going to be taking place in a time that we had never seen before to take effect, to, to take advantage of all these effects and boosts in technology, to your point, that we've seen from a filmmaking perspective. Now we can finally capitalize on that after a couple of seasons of really laying down groundwork on these characters. So in other words, you're saying that initially the future that they were going to was the one where Biff Tannen ran the entire town of Hill Valley, and now we're going to the future where George and Lorraine are successful and thin. Mm, I would even actually, you know what, I called this more like Back to the Future 3, ironically enough. Like, they ended up finding their way into this weird era that they need to get their way out of that's completely separate from everything else. And maybe it will be loosely connected. Maybe we'll see Leland in a cowboy hat. I'm not <laughs> entirely sure, but it feels like we're completely striking off on our own, ironically enough, you know, in a completely different era that, who knows, maybe... Maybe everything old is new again. Maybe, uh, you know, being a, a being a Western hero has become popular again. Maybe Firefly is really popular in this universe. Maybe they'll run into a spaceship that looks like a giant flying train. Yeah, exactly. Listen, we might as well just make as many connections as possible. But I, I, I just love this choice. I do agree. It could have been executed a little... I wouldn't say neater because it was very neatly tied up. So Spock literally telling the interrogator, yes, and we will make no mention of Discovery or the Spore Drive. No one will even say the names of the people that were on it. And that's why in the future you, we never hear of these characters again. I mean, I don't know if we need to go that far in order to prevent control from taking over again. But you know what? Whatevs. It seems like they respect Spock enough to, to make that happen. Yep, and it certainly goes a long way toward explaining why Spock never mentioned he had a sister. Yes, though he felt her in his heart. She completed him in a way, and she was the one, Jess, that gave him the advice to seek out his opposite, to speak out one James Tiberius Kirk. Wow, and then we got that relationship, and we are better off for it. Yes, and slash fiction writers have never been happier, so they should be thanking Michael Burnham for that last-minute advice. Yeah, you know... I There was a period of time where I read so much fan fiction, I couldn't watch that show. I would watch it, and I would forget that they're not really in a relationship on the show. <laughs> but doesn't it make it more fun to like look into those scenes like they do? Oh, sure, sure. Although, I do think that maybe McCoy wanted one or both of them, and that was why there was so much tension between him and Spock. Yeah, it's interesting. I have seen some debate on the internet as to people, you know, Kurtzman said to me that it represents Kirk, but people were like, well, actually, Bones is more of the oppositional Mm -hmm. to Spock. And I guess it's because they were more so, like, I think, moral opposites and constantly conflicting. But I don't know. I really do feel like it's the Kirk and Spock pairing of, you know, the the odd couple of two people who are diametrically opposed, yet sort of have a symbiotic relationship as to, like, just two adversarial people. Yeah, I mean, my, my son just got a little golden book about Spock. And there's even a whole page about how McCoy is Spock's opposite, but it's important to have different opinions. Wow. Yeah, it's it's pretty great. That's really cool, actually. I did not know there was a little golden book about Spock. Yeah, I didn't either. I, I know there's a million of them about Star Wars, but when I saw there was this one about Star Trek, I had to snap it up. Do they, I mean, how far do they get into Spock's history? Do they? Do they talk about his sacrifice? They never talk about, like, nobody dies in the book, mm-hmm. but they, they they do talk about 
they talk about how his, his parents are come from two different worlds and that helps him balance. And they talk about how then he joins Starfleet and he's very heroic and he's a science officer, but he also takes over when Kirk isn't on the bridge. Did, does it mention Michael Burnham at all? Is Michael Burnham officially in the Star Trek extended universe that this book provides? No, no. And I think this is specifically because Spock said we're never going to talk about my sister again. And that includes in the little golden book biography of me. <laughs> yeah, that's actually was in his script and it got redacted later was when he specifically called out the little golden book series that will be made technically in the past about him now. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they had a time suit. I'm just saying. Yeah, so what did you make ultimately? Because I feel like that's another like big piece of news outside of them disappearing into the wormhole. Because I will say, this second half of the episode, I was a little surprised by. It's so ironic to me that season one's theme was war, but it had a pretty talky finale. Season two is the talky season about faith and logic, and they had a big battle to end it. It's, it's so flip-flop to me. Well, I think that... The moral of that story is we got a budget to do the battle that every Star Trek franchise always wanted to do because this mm. was a, this was an epic battle. This was, I'm not a person that likes the fight scenes and this is, this episode felt very like penultimate Game of Thronesy to me plot wise, but I was sitting there thinking, man, these battle sequences are really freaking cool. Oh, it's so badass, specifically from a cinematography perspective. First, I have to I have to throw commendations for the length of it. I know that we you mentioned Game of Thrones when you say like the Battle of the Bastards is an hour long battle. It's incredible. Or even the battle at the wall. I think this was like ended up being 45 minutes of televised warfare, which is unheard of, especially in Star Trek. But there's so much great cinematography going on. Just the fact that you're able to put so many drones on the screen at once. I mean, shots like when Michael takes off from the shuttle bay and you follow her as the armada surrounds her and she bobs and weaves through it. It's just, it's so entertaining. And not even to talk about the Inception-like gravity wonky fight scene between Nan and Control and Giorgio. There was just so much cool stuff going on. And I do agree. I think to your point, they're like, well, we have our legs out you know, under us. The gravity is not wonky here. We have the budget. Let's make a cool-ass, big-ass battle to go out on, and they succeeded in that. I just think it's funny that for a relatively peaceful season, for it to end out in a knockout, drag-out brawl is pretty funny. Yeah, and I, I enjoy... Well, I enjoy it when they abruptly pivot like that. I I kind of liked it last season when they did that. Um, and now it's just... I think it says because... It's, it says that this universe is a lot of things and mm -hmm. there is fighting and there is science and there is warfare and there's diplomacy. And then in the end, everybody gets together and saves all sentient life in the galaxy. And I, I thought, okay, that there's only one way this can go. And I think we even talked about it a little bit last week. Like Ash Tyler disappears. You know, he's going to get some Klingons to come back. I was surprised to see the Kelpians roll into this battle, and that was a little bit out of left field, but I was here for it. Yeah, I mean, Vahari, I guess, just makes you, like, super adept with operating large pieces of machinery. Though I guess there is a, a good portion of time. I think, like, probably, like, I don't know, 
at least a, a, a couple weeks or so have passed between their time and Kaminar. So I'm assuming they said, all right, let's take uh, possession of this technology that we were not allowed to t- and even sacrifice to protect for, you know, our entire lifetimes. But yeah, I was surprised about that as well. But I think to your point, it was really cool that you had Kelpians, you had Klingons, and you had, you know, I guess a representation of Zahia there as well to really say that, hey, all the friends we met along the way are all going to come together and work together to defeat this threat. The fact that life will defeat artificiality at the end of the day, that only one ship was being controlled by a quote-unquote person. Everything else was just being controlled from an automatic perspective to the point where when one got shut down, they all got defeated. It's a really cool commentary on that. And they came in style, man. That cleave ship is uh, something to talk about. Yeah, that was beautiful. So you're saying it's a lot like a strand of cheap Christmas lights. (laughs) Yes, exactly. If one bulb is out, then the rest of them will go out too. Yeah, yeah, it was was great. And, you know, I might have been madder at this, like, total, total shift at the very end of the season – Except that now that we've done it twice, I feel like this is going to be their M.O. going forward. So next season, it'll be like bottle episode, bottle episode, bottle episode. Entire Star Trek universe converges on one thing. Yeah. And then it'll but then it'll also take another shift to the end. It'll end with like, I don't know, some sort of sitcom sequence starring Harry Mudd and Stamets or something like that. Just to like just keep them on their toes, Jess. It's like we're watching too many cooks. Yeah, basically. And then, you know, I believe the cat was an alien in that. So I think it it makes sense in the Star Trek verse. But I guess getting back to the big twist finale of it all. So what did you make of the final revelation that it was indeed because it had sort of been alluded to. In fact, I believe Colbert's theory was actually that Michael Burnham was a red angel. But what did you make of the fact that she was the one that had to set the signals, including the fact that there were only five signals to begin with because the other two are actually in the future from the present timeline? So, Mike, you didn't ask Alex Kurtzman if this whole arc came about because he and a bunch of his buddies got stoned and watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Because this is totally that deleted scene at the end of the credits of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure of them going back and putting the keys behind the sign. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the, and the garbage can on top of the rafters and everything. It's it's also very much it really reminded me of uh, the climax of the third Harry Potter book where Harry cast his own Patronus across the lake to protect him from the Dementors. Yes, it's that, too. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's a trope that's been done before, to your point. But I think especially from a visual perspective, this was awesome. Again, the effects were so cool between the weird little like drop of oil that she disappeared into as a time void to the fact that time travel was represented through all these spheres of light rushing past her, the weird colored grids that represented the various points that she jumped to. Granted, I don't think, at least those of us that have been studying the season closely, don't necessarily need a rehash of, this is what they did on the asteroid, this is what they did on Kaminar, because they also had mentioned it like three minutes beforehand. But I guess if they want to use it as a culmination of everything we've seen up to that point, it serves its purpose. Well, speaking of Harry Potter, this was very much like when you read the Harry Potter books and you thought, well, this is like a chapter in Harry's life, this is a year of him at school, And this was the adventure he had. And then at the end, it's like, oh, no, each one of these 
had a special purpose because each one of these books highlights a different Horcrux. This is exactly what that was. Yeah. And I guess, you know, we had speculated at the very beginning of the season, or at least you and Rob did about why did they go to the asteroid? Was it the dark matter that turned out to be a red herring, a dark red herring? Cause it was jet Reno. <laughs> I guess they needed her specialization with the time crystal, which she seemed totally fine after that brief glimpse into a possible future. She seemed totally you know, okie dokie, just uh, hamming it up with her one-liners while she was working at the Time Crystal in this episode. They had to find a safe haven in Terralisium, Kaminar, so the Kelpians could come fight. Uh, and they needed they needed the Time Crystal, of course, from Borath. I thought for I thought that Borath was going to be for the the, uh, the 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 Klingon side of things, but it turns out the Klingons were just sort of there. And then, of course, Zahia to get Poe there. So, was it convenient? Yes, but that's also time travel plots. I think they sort of wrote themselves into a corner that they had to really untie themselves from. And I think they were able to do it in a pretty neat way that looked both pretty and neat. Yeah, and I like that you're both correct and incorrect if you called it at the beginning of the season that the Red Angel was Michael Burnham. Because you know that that was kind of the most Occam's razor of it all to say that, oh, well, it's probably one of them like coming back to tell you important things from the future and because it's so tied into spock and to michael it's probably her in some fashion but the fact that it was and it wasn't was kind of cool yeah and i like how it connects back to this idea again of faith and logic michael even says to spock because spock's the one who comes up with the theory she says you're asking me to take a leap of faith and he says one that is only logical and i do like the fact that this is she's been she of little faith this entire season someone who even as of late was like the signals don't matter why are we doing this but no she was the one that was sending signals she was the one that was putting out these these ideas of faith and really permeating the crew members minds a different effect to take on this path so that they get to this point so that they do not end up on the bad timeline which confused me a bit because i i thought we had discussed that when Captain Pike grabbed the time crystal from Tenevec, Tenevec said, you're basically resigning yourself to the faith that you see in doing this. So you'd assume that Michael and, and Jet Reno in touching the same crystal would also, you know, have a fate that was locked in, but I guess not? Well, I think it's probably something to do with, like, unplugging the time crystal. Mm. So that person's fate is already sealed, but... You know, he's already he's already kind of gotten the main dose of the juice and everybody else can touch it and see like bits, but they're not retrieving it and formally being the one to sign it out of the library. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's like Pike's possession. And if he is able to share it with other people, then that's totally fine. It doesn't necessarily indicate that this is the you know constricted path that you're going down. It still is able to exercise as, ooh, this could be one page of your choose-your-own-adventure book, but you better keep your finger on the other pages just in case something bad happens. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. So I just thought it was so interestingly done. And I, I guess, you know, with the time crystal officially out of juice on the other side, do you think this is a wrap on the time suit, or do you think it's going to show its face back again, especially if they're trying to make their way back into the 23rd century. Well, there's a loose end we haven't tied up yet that I think I would like to see them go back to it at some point. It might be a while, but 
the fact that, and maybe I'm the only one that cares about this, so this could fully be my thing, but Gabrielle Burnham disappeared in the time suit at the point when Michael Burnham Sr. died and Michael Burnham Jr. got adopted by Spock's family. And then they say, but we found her body there. So Mm -hmm. there were two bodies at the place where her parents died, and they identified those bodies. So I was positing that at some point, Gabrielle Burnham goes back to that moment, and that's when she actually dies. But she is like shot off into times unknown at this point. And I think shooting her off into times unknown rather than killing her at that point says that we're going to see her again. And she may be the catalyst that helps get them back to their own time. Yeah, I could see that, which uh, I'm not so sure. I mean, I don't know. I I really liked Gabrielle as a one-off concept in what she represented. And there was even some mirroring in this episode when Spock and Michael were talking about like how I didn't, I didn't want you to go. I just got to know you. I don't want to leave you again. It's very reminiscent of what she told Gabrielle Burnham as well. I, I just don't know how much more we need to explore with that, how much more we need to discover. So I feel like, I don't know if there's a lot of, from an emotional perspective, utility in re-digging up those issues between Gabrielle Burnham and her daughter. From a practical perspective, I agree with you. She seems to be the master at this point of jumping backwards into time. So she would be the most likely character to help them do so. Yeah, I I think so. If we're not just going to rely on Michael herself and the time crystal, get them back or to have like some other like timey wimey thing happen, which totally possible because Star Trek. So Mm -hmm. yeah, they could, they could fly around the sun again to bring themselves back in time. They were able to do that all the way back into the 1980s. So it's possible. That's been done. Yeah. I, I would say anything is possible because Star Trek. Yeah, that's very true. It is interesting. I know we've been comparing uh, Star Trek to Harry Potter before, but it really does feel like what Star Trek does especially is they really give Burnham the Harry Potter treatment in that, like, she's important to each and every plot point. Like, she was the only the person who could operate the suit. She was the one who had to go back and set the signals. You know, they, they really love their Michael Burnham, which makes sense. Sinker Martin Green has really changed the game on Star Trek main characters in a myriad of ways, but... I feel like now we might have to take a knock em razor approach to, hey, if there's a big mystery, you got to expect that Michael Burnham has some part in it. Yeah, but it's also maybe we're going to move away from that in the next season. And maybe we're going to start to get to know some of these people that sacrificed everything to go into the future. And they tried to do that a little bit this season, as we've mentioned, to mixed results. But now let's start to weave those B characters into the plot a little bit. Let them have the moment of glory every so often. Yeah, and I think that on the note of Voyager, maybe they can go to those typical Star Trek con- Star Trek constructs of, hey, here's a mission of the week, or here's something we have to do that maybe doesn't tie into the overall narrative. Let's send Detmer and Reese out to take care of it how did they interact what's their story we saw a little bit with the families but like what are their personalities like maybe that's an opportunity to explore it because now that we have so much wide open space 
you know, that's a whole sandbox of things to play with and find and discover. And I feel like they might be better suited to have random encounters with a bunch of different things than creating another big mystery. I think the mystery was fine and worked for this season, but when you're in a completely new universe, I almost think you have to kind of start over narratively and just start from the beginning as to what setting are they in, who's involved, and then characterize based on that. Well, yeah, and we already have a big mystery, which is how do we get back to our own time? Mm, yeah, that's true. If if we get back to their own time. Yeah, I, and I, if I, we don't, then what is it like? And you know, are they going to try to make contact with Starfleet? And what's that going to be like? Yeah, is there is there even a Starfleet? Has it all fallen apart? Or is there a new, or has Section 31 become the good Section 31 again? And uh, Which, I guess, speaking of Section 31, I guess we should talk about the official R.I.P. of Leland. Speaking of badass fight sequences, uh, what'd you think about the way that things ended up with him and Giorgio and a little bit of non thrown in? Um, well, my first observation is, where was this non all season? Because she was awesome. Uh, and <laughs> I, I mean, look, non, non might get my award for freakiest freak of the season. Cause she's, <laughs> she's a little, she's a little, you know what she needs? She's good with her fighting skills. She needs to work on the smack talk. Georgia Did she has, go through Vahari between last episode and this episode? Yeah, it's weird how she like, she specifically wants revenge on Leland. Maybe it's because, uh, she blames him for the Arium stuff through control, but like, there's such weird exchanges of dialogue between Giorgio and Nam, where Giorgio's like, Yes, would you like to join me in making Leland scream? And she replies, Yum, yum. Yum, yum? Who replies, It's not Spumoni ice cream. This is death. And then, like, later on, when she calls him, like, oh, she's like an AI sausage. Like, I think she needs to work on the one-liners. I'm happy that non staying aboard, but she has such... Whatever Giorgio's batting a uh, tennis ball at her, she promptly just, like, sucks it up into a shredder and spits out the uh, the remnants of it. No, I'm here for that. I'm I'm here for really bad smack talk. I'm here for this new, like... I'm vicious and bitchy and I'm going to serve up some terrible revenge. And I I thought it was great. I'm like, where was this character? I love that she came out of nowhere. It, it's, I don't know if it was intentional and I don't know if I think it's bad or if I think it's great, <laughs> but I was so here for it. I thought it was, it was just so much fun to watch. And I also, I don't think anybody should be like on this personal vendetta mission here because it felt like a lot of Giorgio's issue was she didn't like Leland, but yeah. that's not Leland. That's yeah. control. That's control inhabiting Leland. And she's like, I'm going to go make Leland suffer because he did all this stuff. Like, no, he didn't do that stuff. Control did that stuff. And you're punishing him for something he didn't do. Although I'm sure he's something of a douche, you know, at least be real about what you're doing here. And also like, it probably doesn't matter to her. I mean, I guess maybe the the overarching narrative for her this season is that the Terran did grow a heart, at least for Michael Burnham. So maybe it's like any any enemy of Michael Burnham's is an enemy of mine. But she still shows shades of her her Terranness, especially when you know when she eventually does get Leland trapped in that spore cage and is able to pull out the. I was. I was like already covering my head in my hands, Jess, being like, okay, how are they going to get the nanobots out of his skin? It was done okay. But I mean, this is coming from a woman who has pain boots outfitted in her palace. You can tell that she like, she relished in this. Yeah. I mean, she eats Kelpians. 
Yeah, exactly. Though I did like that as well. That's something that I'm really excited for in season three was their Saru and Giorgio briefly seeing eye to eye with their shared knowledge of Sun Tzu. Yeah, that was that was very strange. And I'm surprised it didn't get remarked upon like, oh, wow, you're into Sun Tzu as well. I wonder how many people I ate who were I had <laughs> things in common with and I never knew it. Yeah, exactly. We'll see. Maybe George Rubin becomes a vegetarian next season, or maybe she finds a new species to eat in this new universe. Well, you know, if it, if she wanted to really go for full insufferable, all she has to do is become a vegan. <laughs> exactly. And just go around insulting people and the replicators for the choices that they make. Yeah. Yeah. Even though replicated food probably isn't made of animals, yeah, question gonna, mark. I was going to say, I think they're technically all vegans considering how much they're eating replicated food. I would assume. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but speaking of Saru, so I talked to, to Kurtzman about this. I mean, he is technically sitting captain going into the wormhole. So my assumption was, okay, no more changing of the guard when it comes to captains. We're going to see Saru next season. But Kurtzman said something really interesting where he said, we'll definitely be exploring who inherits that chair. Obviously, there's a very loaded look between Saru and Burnham. They're both qualified in very different ways. And that's something we'll explore. I was surprised to hear that, Jess. I did not think that Michael Burnham would want to be the one to take the take to the captain's chair so quickly. That would be so against everything we've seen of Michael Burnham up to this point. I would really hate that, and I hope that's not what happens. Yeah, if it's, if it's just a forced conflict between them after Saru finally gets the job that he wants and deserves, I don't know if I necessarily want that. If it's a thing where the crew feels like she should be captain because she's the one that brought them here and might have maybe the, her inherent connection to the time suit brings her a better knowledge of what this universe may provide. I could see that, but I just thought that was interesting because my assumption was that we'd just be seeing Captain Saru, which, as we talked about last episode, is super interesting considering that post-Vaharai Saru is a little bit of a firebrand. And who knows if that's a great personality to have in the chair. Yeah, it would be it would at least not be boring. Um I do think it's interesting that I don't think Saru would necessarily have wanted this role pre-Vaharai. And mm. now it's like he does not doubt his abilities in the slightest. He's like, "Yeah, I'm the best. What you going to do about it? I I want that guy to be captain." Yeah, he's like, "Look, I just saved all our asses from getting fired upon from 30 AI-controlled ships and about 700 billion drones that came out of it. Like, I saved all of your lives, which I'll also say, uh, speaking of that battle, I mean, now it seems like Cornwell really made a mistake keeping the Enterprise out of the Klingon War because that thing took so many damn hits and was able to survive, you know, pretty well, except for that torpedo in its hull. Yeah, well, it's whatever that door is made out of. The entire ship is probably yeah. also made out of it. Yeah, it's like the black box material. That's what, what the door is made out of, essentially. Because that, that one blaster was all it needed to close down to prevent basically the entire ship from exploding. Yeah, that was that was something else. Yeah, I mean, I can understand it again. Where If we're talking about sacrifice aboard the Enterprise, it makes sense that it would happen. Uh, you know, I, I just think that... We all sort of knew it would happen. They all sort of knew it happened. Like when when number one did that weird handshake with Cornwall, I assume that was them both knowing exactly what was going to happen. I don't know if we necessarily needed Pike to do that, especially since we haven't really built out their relationship. But I guess we could we had to have her say to give the last words of like, you'll find your own path. I believe you. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I will say the Enterprise stuff that we saw was not 
as entertaining as all the other stuff that was going on. Yeah, I, I almost like I kind of found myself zoning out a little bit. I'm like, no, 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 get back to the thing with all the drones or, you know, get back to the time suit stuff. Yeah, except for the uh, the dot sevens. Those were all those were cute little wallies. Yeah, those were fun. I, yeah. I'm surprised that we haven't seen those before. And I hope some of them came with them to the future because I feel like that's sort of like the um, like the robots on Red Dwarf that used to go around and like serve drinks to Lister. <laughs> yeah, or it could just be like maybe Pike afterwards was like, all right, no holograms and no more dot sevens. We're going completely old school here. Or maybe Spock said like, we must not speak of Discovery, the Spore Drive or the dot sevens. I just don't <laughs> like them. <laughs> Yeah, like this is Spock's real opportunity to excise anything he doesn't like about his universe. Yeah, exactly. We will not talk about that one time at Vulcan summer camp where I pooped my pants and threw them into the bushes. That nobody will ever speak of that again <laughs> under penalty of tor of the of, of treachery. Yeah, I, I I think this is a really this is an untapped opportunity for Spock. And it seems like I mean I guess he was bonding a bit with his parents. At least it seems like he met with them to be like, yeah, don't talk about Michael anymore. Bye. But what did you think about, I mean, the, the bridge to the bridge of Spock that we know and love complete with, I, I guess I didn't realize how much just I had gotten used to like Beatles looking Spock until <laughs> Ethan got his haircut and shaved his beard and looked, in my opinion, real weird. Well, he was like 1966 Beatles Spock, and now he's 1962 Beatles Spock. Yeah, he's Ed Sullivan Spock. He's totally, it was like, you know, Sergeant Pepper Sessions Spock, and now Ed Sullivan Spock. I was, I, listen, I was into it when they were, when Spock was just going to hang out in a bed and saying, give peace a chance. Now he's, he's back to being clean cut. He's running, uh, you know, all the Andorians are chasing him down the hallway, wanting to get an autograph of the guy who helped stop control. He's hiding behind a newspaper and the, on the holodeck. <laughs> this is the, you know, forget, you know, forget the amazing race. This is the crossover event of the century. Absolutely. Star Trek and the Beatles is all I need right now. I, I'm surprised they didn't do a crossover with the animated series and all the yellow submarine of it all. Yeah, I, I would be here for that for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, you know, maybe that's maybe next season is just going to be like that's going to be the animated season. <laughs> just they popped out into like an animated universe. Yeah, totally. That'd be that would be interesting. Uh, I mean, I feel like the budget people would be like, oh, well, I guess we blew our load on that big battle. Uh, let's go animate it. And occasionally puppets if we go into another dimension. I, I would love, I would love a puppet episode. Yeah, I, I'd be interested in a puppet episode personally, where they all got turned into puppets for some strange reason. But also, like, that's a very next gen going with goofy <laughs> concepts it seems i don't know if disco still seems to be living even though season two has been lighter they're still sort of living in that dark serious realistic universe they, they haven't gone full puppet yet that save that more for the lower decks rick and morty-esque animated series that's coming soon i guess so i think part of the reason we don't get those episodes is because we have fewer episodes in a season i agree like when you have 24 episodes in a season you gotta do something with the ferengi or you're gonna run out of story yeah, or also, like, if you are going with an overarching narrative and you feel like you need to advance the plot in some way, shape, or form, even though you could argue the first, like, four or five episodes 
didn't really do it that significantly. We were a bit stalled in the garage of who is the Red Angel? What are the signals? You don't really have a lot of time to pussyfoot around and do those types of things. Uh, I guess speaking of the storylines that really got brought about in the first few episodes, I'll admit, Jess, I was surprised to see Stamets and Colbert back together. Uh, to Col- for Colbert to, to stay on the medical deck to uh, eventually tend to his pretty his pretty effed up partner after that sh- shrapnel incident. Yeah, I thought that that was kind of a wrap on them. But on the other hand, I think both of these actors, we did know that they were going to be back next season. So we knew that that was going to happen. But it did seem like he did sort of a 180 there. Yeah, that's the thing is that I... I'm happy for it just from a base level because I enjoy both these characters. I want some relationship to be happy now that Ash, Tyler, and Michael seem to be broken up for now. We need we need one OTP. But that being said, I'm a bit confused about Hugh's character transition because it really did seem like he was even saying that he felt like a completely different person was, for lack of a better term, was Stamets the constant for him? Was it just that that he remembered how you know, how much his life revolved around him and that brought him around. Because I don't really know if I like the concept of like, I'm forcing myself to be back in love with you because I realize how important you used to be in my life. Yeah, or how important this is to the plot. Yeah, that too. It also is weird that I know he was supposed to be a big surprise appearance, but there's a pretty clear shot right before Stamets gets wheeled into sickbay where you see him in the background. So I'm like, okay, this reveals a little bosh because I just saw that Culver was here. I I know he's in the vicinity and that he's probably going to go to Stamets' side. Well, you need to have a guy that looks just like Culver. You need to pre-establish that. Sort of like like on Walking Dead, there's a guy at the hilltop who looks exactly like Glenn and keeps showing up and you're like, huh, how is Glenn back? He died, but it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, you want to keep the viewers on their toes by saying, ah, I didn't realize that character would be there. Oh, right, it's not. But in this case, it was. Yeah. Is it Hugh or is it Drew? <laughs> Drew Dolber. The the bad side of Hugh Culver. He was the, maybe that's the thing. He was the one who was breaking up with Stamets. He was the one who was fighting with Ash Tyler. When Hugh got brought out from the little cocoon in the spores, actually two of him came out and Drew has been running around a la lore and data, just making a big old mess of things. Oh, oh, we're going to get an episode all about this. That's a short track be- right there. The Adventures of Drew Dolber. It's Wilson Cruz's Emmy reel. Yeah, so instead of a goatee, he has none. <laughs> He's clean-shaven, like that's different. Yeah, exactly. Like, ooh, Hugh, you shaved today. Shut up! You're fired! Shut up, I don't like you anymore. I don't, I hate you now! I'm lighting the ship on fire! <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 I'm here for Drew Dolber in season three. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that, that'd be pretty great. I don't know which one of the two of them or both ended up going into the future, but... That should bake for some interesting times. I'm surprised that Jet Reno is going into the future. Do you think this means more Tignataro? Because I hope so. I hope so. I mean, what else is Tignataro doing? Yeah, that's true. What no could more be more important. No more one Mississippi. So she has. I think she has the time free. I hope that means we get her character built up as well. We saw a bit of it in episode twelve, but yeah, we even saw some fun tastes in her here, where she defied Saru a bit and then walked it back by calling it Sir, uh, calling him Sir. I could really see like. I think her and Tilly working together would be a lot of fun. And of course, there's always the the grumbly Stamets aspect. If, you know, Stamets is able to not be in traction in the start of season three, considering how screwed up he was. 
Yeah, well, she can she can fix him. She can fix anything. Like, yeah, leave just, him alone with some duct tape and he'll be fine by episode three. Imagine him just hobbling along, which I will say maybe one of the downsides of a 45 minute battle sequence is uh, even to this day of more than 50 years of Star Trek, we have our tried and true trope here, Jess, of every time a ship gets hit with fire, there is lurching and there nonsensically are rocks falling from the ceiling <laughs> and sparks going off. Yeah, well, I I feel like every ship has the rock bay. <laughs> like it just kind of built un- underneath the control panels they just keep a bunch of rocks just for these moments yeah maybe they just have a big like geology collection you know like picard was really into archaeology maybe someone on board discovery is just really into geology and just has a whole cargo net of rocks above them keeping them safe in case you know so people don't step on them or get them wet or scuff them up and they when they get jostled they just fall everywhere well they were a scientific research vessel at one point yeah, that's very true. And science covers a raw, broad spectrum of topics. I just think there's a lot of lurch acting going on this episode where people had to throw themselves over the consoles. I would really like to see if someone could please uh, do an edit where they keep the camera steady and see how <laughs> the actors have to throw themselves to and fro on the set. I, I, I like this. This is sort of like it's sort of like this YouTube video I stumbled across that shows Fred Astaire dancing on the ceiling in Royal Wedding, but it shows like what the camera was doing. Oh, interesting. And that's very much in line with uh, we had some fighting on the ceiling this episode as well. Well, exactly. And what a feeling. We're fighting on the ceiling. I thought that was actually really well done. It wasn't uh, it wasn't Inception like in that it was, you know, it seemed like one true tracking shot. But the fact that it was done with three people and done pretty effortlessly, I thought it was just a cool aspect to you know, to, to to put into a big fight. Yeah, I think they get to think about a lot of what are the greater implications of fight scenes happening in this universe. And now we have the practical and digital effects to make those things happen. We can really explore them. So I I was here for that. And I liked I liked the chaos of all of these various battle scenes as well. Yeah, that's true. It, it really, you know, the other some other battle scenes really seem like, you know, the swing swing punch punch kick this one was really like and maybe it's because it was between three people but it was much more varied in terms of who landed a hit where most of them were landed on leland but leland landed a lot more on the other two but it it was a it was definitely different from some other stuff we've seen before we're a long way from uh from poor kirk on that desert planet yeah, very, very true. Um, and a lot, a lot of like, even the space battle scenes, I think a lot of times they're just like pew, 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 returning fire and in straight lines. And this was just like so much was happening. It was really hard to take it all in. I almost wish that I could like go somewhere and watch this finale in IMAX. I know. That's the other thing as well. I got really lucky in that in, in attending the Star Trek Discovery season two premiere, I got to see that first episode in IMAX, especially when they did the big spacewalk where uh, poor Conover, the asshole from the Enterprise, ends up dying. That was so awesome on the big screen. I kind of wish they had done a screening for the finale as well, because 45 minutes of that would just be amazing to take into your point every single detail of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, as it is, I can't even get CBS All Access to work on my TV. So I watch this show on an iPad. And oh, I, wow. I miss a lot. Yeah, that's uh, the pads are prevalent in Star Trek as well, but I don't think they would be watching battle footage on it even. No, no, they put the battle footage up on their big screen. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's the, that's the big uh, the big windshield view that this enterprise has. Uh, they they'd be able to really get play some great movies on that. They'd be able to play Funny Face in a really great uh, widescreen spectrum. Yeah, well, they now have the technology; they can just like write themselves into the middle of it. So there's that. I don't know. I don't know what Pike's concern. He might be like, "We're going back to real. No DVDs or anything like that." Yeah, Pike actually makes people stage live plays for him because he doesn't like recorded media. I like that. Or you have to do radio plays where you provide your own sound effects. Yep, they like wobbling a screen to simulate thunder. <laughs> exactly, or p- put two coconuts together to, <laughs> well, I would say to uh, to make up horse footsteps, but I don't think they even know what horses are at this point, so. I I don't know. They've they're Do they have holodecks yet? Um, well, I know Pike would not let that happen. I feel like that's more of a 24th century thing, but maybe there's been smatterings of talk about it. Yeah, and I mean, somebody knows what horses are. Kirk knew what horses were in Generations. Yeah, that's true. And uh, Picard was also talked up all the horse riding, which got him on the Enterprise in in the first place during that Home Alone-esque episode where the people tried to rob them. (laughs) Oh, I'd forgotten about that one. That's a deep pull. Yeah, I only watched the episode recently. That's why I remember it so well. All right. So, Mike, is there anything else you want to leave us with before we sign off for the season? Yeah, so I thought, as I mentioned before, I thought it'd be nice to sort of sum up the past 14 episodes by talking through some pluses and some minuses with how things went. I will say overall, I like season two better than season one. I think it was more solid overall. That being said, I didn't like everything, but I guess we'll start with the positive. What were some pluses for you when it came to Star Trek Discovery Season 2? Um, I think one thing that Season 2 did really well over Season 1 is every episode felt semi-self-contained while also contributing to kind of an overarching plot, uh, where mm-hmm. I felt like Season 1 you can kind of take divided into two chunks, and you have like... Everything up to Ash Tyler is a Klingon, and then everything surrounding Lorca is from the Mirror Universe. And it wasn't quite as cohesive, and we weren't building to something. And I really liked the sort of quantum leapiness of the following the signals to do something for the greater good, but then it turns out you're actually helping yourself. That was really elegant when it all came together in the end. And I thought that was really a lot of fun. I think we've already talked about how Anson Mount's Christopher Pike is the best thing about the season and something that we will really miss going forward. I thought the Enterprise set was super duper sexy, and I would love to see more of that. So I would say those are my top three, Mike. What would you say? Yeah, I'd say I agree with you in terms of the format. I like the fact that they were more experimental here, that they went back to more of the classic Trek rather than the peak TV format, especially in that first half of the season. And they were able to marinate in things like the Terralisium episode or the Sphere episode, which really, while on paper, were one-offs that helped us realize characters like Pike and Saru a bit more they end up contributing to this overall narrative that ties into the season. And that's really that balance that DS9 struck really well. So I'm happy they were able to replicate on that success. I co-sign Anson Mount. I'll also put in a plus for Ethan Peck as well. I think his Spock is 
different, but his affectations and his mannerisms are very interestingly in that sort of Nimoy spectrum. And the fact that, you know, he comes around to the character that we know and love from a visual perspective, I'll admit I bought into a, a bit that if Alex Christman told me in the very beginning of the season that we're going to see the unwritten chapter of Spock and how he became the Leonard Nimoy depiction, I can see that now. I can see how much of a profound effect Michael Burnham had on where he was to where he is now. And I think that, you know, still trotting out some bananas things like bringing back Hugh, having her previously, Michael's previously deceased or thought to be deceased mother come back as the Red Angel. Jess, I know you were yearning for some of those big rug pulls, and we got them specifically in the back half of the season. So I think all those things contributed to some really entertaining material overall that also marinated in some really interesting themes that make it really call back to, you know, what Star Trek is all about. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. And so now for things that I wish they had done better. I really think they gave they gave short shrift to anybody who was not like in the core main cast. Mm-hmm. And every time they went away from that and they tried to bring someone in, it was very clunky and very awkward. And I felt like Arium was a very rare misstep for the show and something that we could have organically woven her experience into everything that happened up to this point to make us care about her death a little bit more. And the fact that they just kind of threw it all at us at once and expected us to care about it was hard to digest. And the same for the short treks. It was an interesting experiment. I'm And like you said, I'm, I'm glad that they are not afraid to try new things. But I would say I don't want my enjoyment of the season or my understanding of what's going on to be dependent on an eight-minute webisode that I didn't know I was supposed to have watched. Mm. And on top of that, if you didn't watch it, they have to awkwardly summarize it in the episode proper. Because I agree, I like the world-building that it does. And I thought the way they were brought into the plot was interesting. Obviously, it had a huge effect on Saru's thing, and Poe made an appearance here. But the fact, when you had Saru and Tilly have to like stand there for a minute and a half and explain what happened in an awkward way... Just I they could find a better way to to do it overall. For my minuses, totally kind of cosign you on the area I'm serving as a microcosm of the fact that the tertiary crew doesn't really have big characters yet. I'm really hoping, you know, what Alex Christman told me comes true and then they work more on that. I'm building out this quote unquote family. I would say I wasn't a huge fan of what they did with the Klingons. This season, I know that they want to go back to the Klingons because of the Ash Tyler and the Laurel stuff, but it's sort of like, it felt like they were circling the drain a bit when it came to like, what does post-war Klingon High Council look like? And, you know, there was some interesting stuff going on with, you know, Laurel deciding to give up her child, but I felt like that wasn't really followed up on, so it sort of lost its impact. And on top of that, I will say that while it was interesting to bring Hugh back and there was some some interesting focus there on like the PTSD of it all and how you feel like a different person, maybe after a traumatic incident like that, the whole going into the mycelial network in retrospect really meant nothing. 
considering that as much as Stamets felt grieved about what he was doing to their ecosystem, he was spore jumping maybe two episodes after that. And even if the spore jump or the, the spore system is no longer spoken of in the present timeline, I can only assume we're doing it a bunch more in the future uh, or I guess, yeah, in the very distant future where they're going to. So that's one of those things where in the moment you're like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. I wonder what profound effects it will have. And in retrospect, it really didn't. And I wonder if they could have done if they had not put that by the wayside in favor of more of this Red Angel stuff, if that's something they really could have focused on. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I And I think we called attention to it every time they used the spore drive this season. Like, I thought we weren't supposed to do that anymore. I thought it was ruining things, but apparently not. So, but I will say overall, I think what we're saying are, I think in the grand spectrum of things, minor quibbles, I think that Star Trek Discovery is on a good path right now. I think season two, they became more sure-footed and they said, yeah, we're going to utilize these old school characters, but we're going to try to use them in new ways in our ways and even though they did try some things that might not have worked from a thematic and characterization perspective they ended in a really cool place and that leaves me with hope and optimism for what they're going to bring in season three whenever that airs yeah agreed and i'm looking forward to i think they gave us just enough of a taste of what we're going to see in season three that we can be really excited for that whenever we get it. Completely agree. And I guess on that note, I mean, I don't exactly know what the timeline is. Kurtzman did tell me he wants to see a future where there is pretty much something Star Trek on all the time with maybe some some breaks in between. But from what I heard beforehand, I believe we might be getting some short treks in the next few months. Maybe I heard like a late spring type of thing. So maybe we'll be getting some more short tracks. And I think the other big thing that people are looking forward to is the Picard show is scheduled, I believe, to release late 2019. So if that still holds, just we still have some Star Trek to talk about in 2019, which is which is pretty damn awesome, considering we already had 14 episodes to talk about this year. Yeah, that's very fun. And I, I have high hopes for the Picard series. Yeah, I think Alex Christman has been really pumping it up. Some casting news has come out in the past couple of months that seems really interesting. So I cannot wait to see what comes out of that, especially as of late. I've been rewatching a lot of Next Gen for a piece I'm, I'm doing upcoming for The Hollywood Reporter. So to go right from that into another, and he said it's a very different show from Discovery. And considering how much of a different show Discovery itself has become, I have no idea what we're in store for. And I'm really excited for that. Yeah, I, I think this... Getting into the Star Trek universe, however and whenever we do it, can only be a good thing. Yeah, I think that, you know, he, Alex Kurtzman, is really about building out the universe aspect of the Star Trek universe. And really, he ideally wants to create something where it's not necessarily, okay, this show is, this series is just like the other Star Trek series that's on. He wants each of them to have a distinct tone. And so, no matter what we're going to get, it's all going to look different. And that is extremely exciting for, you know, a fan base that has been waiting 10 years to get Star Trek even back on the air to begin with. Do you think they're ever going to explain how people go to the bathroom on Star Trek? Uh, I feel like, if anything, that Lower Decks Rick and Morty-esque show will do so. I think there's going to be, if they're doing a Lower Decks focus, I think there's definitely going to be a janitor and he's definitely going to talk about it. I will put money on that. Well, then uh, that's the one I'm excited for because be, that's something I've always wondered. It'll be written by J.K. Rowling, actually, ghostwritten. Oh, well, yeah, she's not doing anything. Yeah, she's too busy explaining away other characters. She might as well do that for Star Trek, too. 
Yeah, if the toilets turn out to be haunted on a starship, I might have to not watch that. Or they'll say, like, Kelpians were actually Klingons turned inside out in the past. Well, that see, see, Mike, now you're now you're bringing it back around. <laughs> How so? Like that intrigues me. That I want to know. Okay, so maybe sense. maybe I'll, maybe I'll work on my own fan fiction as to how Kelpians are Klingons turned inside out over the over these next few months before we get more Star Trek to talk about. Totally. After we finish Brant stealing out the Star Trek Amazing Race, you get right on that. Oh man, give me Pike and Una. Maybe she'll so so that Phil can say you're team number one, and it makes so much sense. Yeah, I, I love it. it. It's like it's like when he when he sort of fakes people out. He's like, "You're team number one." <laughs> and then there's nice, a nice little who's on first bit where she's like, "Yes, I am," but what placement are we? <laughs> Oh, it's beautiful. Beautiful. It writes itself. Exactly. Which, again, that'll be another piece that we work on, of course, over these copious amounts of months between Star Trek content. Yes, definitely. So look for that at some point in our ample free time. But in the meantime, there are many places you can catch Mike Bloom. He is the hardest working man in podcasting. That is for certain. Where else are you... Covering television, Mike. So, in terms of Star Trek stuff, you can find all Star Trek updates, including upcoming news items and my interview that I mentioned many times this episode with Alex Kurtzman at THR.com slash Star Trek Discovery. I'll probably be writing something up there about the short tracks, maybe some other stuff with Picard coming up. I do have a Next Generation piece that should hopefully be launching next month. Other than that, I'm doing a lot of stuff in the reality TV sphere. Uh, for Rob has a podcast. I am covering RuPaul's Drag Race right now. I'm covering Survivor every week on the RHAP BNB. And Jess, this will not be the last time. We are not saying such sweet sorrow to each other because we will be back covering The Amazing Race 31, which just started. In fact, you and I got together to do a two-hour podcast about a really fun premiere a couple of days ago. And we'll be back every week to do that. I'll be covering it as well for Parade.com. Uh, and, and in addition to all a bunch of other potpourri of things for Parade, The Hollywood Reporter, comic book resources, if you just go to my Twitter at a Mike Bloom type, that's usually where I, I send out some uh, some subspace messaging about all the stuff that I do. And I just wanted to thank you and Rob again, Jess, for uh, being me on a board to, uh, to talk about this season. It was a delight to get to just really nerd out about Trek and all these different choices they were making with you and i really look forward to getting to do it with you more in the future and including you know 930 years from now yes right back at you mike and i also i want to give a special shout out to rob for bringing me into this madness and also to your lovely spouse angela for filling mm -hmm. in when you and i were doing various things in other countries and i think she did a remarkable job and i hope to have her back on the program at some point in the future as well absolutely um, yeah i i she's a we are at the time of recording this on the the less than one month precipice about having uh, our first child hopefully wharf will not need to be our doula but i'm not putting it past you know the universe to provide yeah, well, that kid's going to have one heck of a middle name if that ends up being the case. Yes, exactly. And hopefully he doesn't get turned inside out and turned into a Kelpian. Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing we can hope for any of our offspring. Yeah, I'll have the doctors see what they can do if they, uh, you know, if there's if there's circumcision of the uh, of the uh, the the tendrils that grow out of the top of the Kelpian's head. Maybe we need to take care of that sooner rather than later. Induce Vaharai from birth. Oh, wow. Wow. You're, you're really you're really covering all the angles here, Mike. Yes. Many, many different types of angles. Oh, dear. Well, 
You can follow me on Twitter at Haymaker Hattie, and we both love hearing from you about any aspect of this universe that you are enjoying, any aspect of this podcast that you have quibbles with or just want to tell us we're doing a great job. We are here for that as well. So I want to thank everybody for bearing with us this whole season. We've had a lot of fun talking Trek with all of you, and we'll see you back here for season three. This post-show recap of Star Trek Discovery comes to us thanks to our friends at True Car. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date. The luxury package you got after a big promotion. The giant cube of salvage that contained only your ship and none of the robotic squid probe you picked up from the time rift. Or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car you can at least find out what your car's worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions. Navigation and moonroof, watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you're finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you could take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out TrueCar today. True cash offer not available in all areas.